the NYPD's gang crackdown done more harm than good? I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. A topic that we have talked about occasionally here on Max and Murphy, we could talk about it every week if we had the time, is policing and criminal justice policy in New York City. The terms that we've used over the years have changed in terms of emphasis from stop and frisk to broken windows. And increasingly, there's attention to how the NYPD has handled gang policing. Uh, It's been an issue for several years, an issue of discussion. It's becoming more an issue in the mainstream because of some recent reporting and some scrutiny of the mayor. And we have to talk about uh, their critique of the way the city is approaching it. Two folks who've been very active in this field for a number of years. We're very pleased to welcome to the show Taylon Murphy Sr. Welcome, sir. And Joe's Trujillo, a longtime writer and an advocate around these issues. Uh, welcome to, to Max and Murphy. What's going on? Thanks Thank, for having us. Thanks for being here. Will you each just uh, tell us in the audience a little bit about yourself and, and the work you do in this, in this advocacy? Uh, so I've been working for the last couple of years um, out of Brooklyn College to do some research and some advocacy around the gang database and the related policing tactics that come with it, uh, and to a lesser extent, some of the prosecution things that we've seen. Uh, And so some of that was raising awareness around, first, some of the cases and some of the large-scale gang takedowns that have happened under the Blasio's administration, um, as well as some of the uh, kind of consequences that come with just being included, just being labeled a gang member by the police department and, and the kind of arbitrary way that that's done. Uh, and some, so a lot of it was just kind of bringing some basic, uh, you know, parameters of what we're dealing with to the public eye, uh, but also to push for uh, any kind of in conjunction with some uh, activists across the country in Chicago and in California uh, to really question the the existence of the database and, and the, the use of uh, of conspiracy and RICO prosecutions against uh, communities of color. And Josmar, just just real quick, how, how did you first get involved in this type of advocacy? What, what brought you into such a focus on this? Yeah, June 4th, uh, 2014, biggest gang raid in the history of New York City at the time. Um, it was on the west side of Harlem. I was living on the east side, and um, it was big news, and it was kind of done as kind of like a mission accomplished moment for the mayor and the police commissioner and the Manhattan district attorney. Uh, and there was so much kind of anguish kind of under the surface that a lot of the, the, the media wasn't reporting on from mothers, from community members who didn't say that there wasn't violence or there weren't issues within the community, but they were saying that this was like another devastating blow on the community. And a lot of people were like roped in uh, unfairly. And so that kind of tipped me off. And, and some of the issues that were there were uh, issues that I've long kind of seen in, in the era of mass incarceration to begin with. Uh, but they were just framed as a gang issue. And so there was a very little kind of opposition uh, to it. And Taylon Murphy Sr.? Yes, uh, I got involved in this work. Actually, I got involved in this work because I'm one of the affected gang, one of the affected um, families. Um, my son was uh, caught up in the 2014 uh, indictment, and uh, I'm more of an advocate about solutions. I don't think um, this sort of, sort of policing is actually the solution to public safety. Uh, there's a big uh, issue about the gang database, which is um, very. Um, what can I say? It's, I, I believe it's a civil rights issue. I mean, being 99.1% uh, black and Latino. Uh, and I've watched that community uh, uh, deteriorate from taking so many young men out of that community um, at, in, in one day and kind of decimating the community. So I'm more of a, a, a person that's uh, solution-driven. 
about what's the answers as opposed to uh, this precision policing. So your family's been touched, as you mentioned, by the prosecution, by the enforcement side of this issue, but also earlier than that by the, the violence itself. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, um, a lot of people call me Mr. Both Sides of the Gun because uh, my daughter uh, in 2011, Tayshana, was uh, taken uh, due to uh, senseless violence in uh, upper Manhattan on the west side of Harlem. And since she was taken, I've been a crusader about uh, a crusade. I've been on a crusade to strive to look for solutions. Like I said, look for solutions other than uh, this line of policing. So I want to play a clip from the mayor because we're going to get into the critique, but also some of the background uh, from earlier this week. Actually, it was last the end week. Of last week. End yeah. of last week when he was confronted by some of the findings of, of the reporting you're talking about. Here is Mayor de Blasio answering a question. We should say this is in WNYC's Brian Lehrer show. I will happily learn more about the specific mechanics and be able to speak to you more about it next week or whenever we next get together. Um, to every single initiative of the NYPD is constantly assessed and reassessed. And no one does that more than Dermot Shea, who, when he ran uh, Comstat, uh, I saw it with my own eyes the way he would constantly question each approach to test if it was working, if it was achieving its goals, if there are any unintended consequences. We do that with everything. But the most central answer I can give is this database is a central tool in addressing a real problem in this city. Even though crime has gone down for six years in a row, the levels of violence are profoundly less than they were in recent years and decades. We have to remain vigilant and we have a huge amount of work to do. And one of the central ongoing problems in this city has been gangs and crews. So, of course, we need to have a systematic effort to address that problem. And uh, I just want to say very clearly to the activists and advocates, if you say, should we keep assessing if it's working, should we keep assessing if it's handled fairly, should we look at ways we can make improvements, of course. But are we going to give up a strategy that is central to stopping gang violence that is afflicting so many neighborhoods? No, we're not going to do that. So there's a lot, a lot to pick apart there, and we will. But I want to start where he talks about Gangs and crews are a real problem in the city. Uh, talk about that. Talk about the context. What what does that look like? What is the problem? And how has that changed or metastasized in the past ten to twenty years? Because it used to be in New York City, it seemed it seemed like gangs was something you talked about for Los Angeles, and it wasn't a New York thing. Maybe that was just naivete. But what have you seen on the ground in terms of how this problem has evolved? Well, what I see on the ground is a lack of resources. I see a lack of resources in the community. Um, I think we should make more human investments. Uh, I see um, building capital expenditures versus human capital expenditures. I believe that if you have credible messengers like myself that are on the ground doing the work, understand the dynamics of the community, uh, you can transform a lot of these young individuals into something that are, is is great. But when you don't have, when you have the lack of resources and these communities are dealing with poverty. And when I say poverty, I'm not talking about economic poverty. I'm talking about social poverty. When you're taking out social uh, programs, when you're taking out social services, when you have poor mental health, uh, uh, poor mental health services, when you have uh, poor outreach, um, you're going to have a poor problem. 
So I believe that we should we you, you, I believe that we should um, invest more in in human beings and human lives. What is the problem with Joseph? Give us a sense. So, are, are gangs and crews a big part of what drives crime in some of our low income neighborhoods? Is that a real is that a real thing? So. As far as we know, gangs are responsible, even by the NYPD st- standards, for 1% of overall crime in the city. What the NYPD says is they're uh, disproportionately responsible for violent crimes in the city. The problem is that because the NYPD also basically has control over the gang label, they can also label any stat a gang-related incident or a not gang-related incident. So the number is even not to be trusted, uh, in my opinion. But the problem with gangs is, is overstated. It's real. There are issues that happen in community. This is not a zero-violence city. This is not a zero-crime uh, city. Uh, but obviously, in, issue, in cities like Chicago or Los Angeles, you have something totally different than New York. What we think happens here is that they overstate the problem so they can have an overstated reaction to the problem. So describe, describe that reaction. What, it, what have you seen as the way that what, to whatever extent it is, is a problem, is, is the reaction to it is from the NYPD? So for the last couple of years, the mayor and the police commissioner, and now Shea, who's a big proponent of, of uh, gang takedowns or, or what are known, what they call precision policing, uh, is that they've they've basically said we're going to double down on this. This is the uh, response to the era of stop and frisk. So we're no longer doing you know mass kind of unconstitutional stops. We're getting the right people, and but what they're doing is some of the most abusive policing and prosecution tactics that I've seen, uh, and they're just doing it to a population that they think they politically can get away with doing to. Very few people, including in the civil liberties, civil liberty community, are going to advocate for uh, an alleged gang member uh, because of, of what that means or what that can mean to, uh, uh, in the city. So I think that they've doubled down on it, not only politically, but we've also seen in terms of the numbers just – by the NYPD's own standards. Thousands of people have been arrested as part of this, and that's not to mention the collateral consequences. So in the lead-up to a gang takedown, there can be years and years of harassment, surveillance, uh, abuses of people's rights, um, just everyday kind of, 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 of the worst sides of policing before the takedown happens. And then after the takedown happens, you can have years and years and years of legal turmoil for these families. And so the reaction to me is completely over the top. We're talking with Taylor Murphy Sr. and Josemar Trujillo about gang policing in New York City. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a ring at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Let's talk about the database. Do we know how many names are on it? Do we know how people get their name on it? And how is it used day-to-day by the NYPD? NYPD says that they cut the numbers down to about 17,000. Um, you should know, people should note that the that the time that they did this was around the time that a CUNY law professor was doing a big foil around this right after the stop and frisk. So they say they cut the numbers down to seventeen thousand. Um, some reports have put it up to upwards of forty two thousand. Um, some people think that the NYPD can literally move the names to a separate database and call it something else, which is a real problem that we're also keeping in mind. Uh, the database is. Uh, you know, from what we have, from the information we have on it, uh, very arbitrary way to get out of it. There's some very loose criteria, living in a known gang location, wearing certain colors, associating with known gang members. Um, as you can imagine, that could lead to very kind of abused interpretations of what that means. Uh, there's no way to get off that we know of. 
um, as opposed to like in California, there's at least a process. It's not a very good process, but there's a process to get yourself off. The problem is it relies on going to the police to ask to be taken off, which is an, which is another issue. Uh, and the way that database is used, we believe, is used with prosecutors to kind of harass and surveil people. In some cases, in, we've, we've noted in the report, people have been stopped for jaywalking. People are privy to threats through a pro- program called Operation Ceasefire, where the NYPD will put you kind of like on a curfew and, and check up on you and give you the kind of unwanted attention um, that they think is, is appropriate for you, but that in my mind passes doesn't pass a, a, a constitutional muster. So I think that there's uh, a lot that we know of that's already bad, but there's a lot that we don't know of, and that's why we're we're also calling on more uh, reporting and also an investigation by the inspector general's office. Go ahead, yeah. And may I, and may I add also, uh, we don't even know how does it stop crime? How does the surveillance stop uh, crimes from happening? I mean, in, in my case, uh, with my daughter, there was a Viper room of officer that sat in the Viper room. A Viper room is uh, a room with cameras that can see, you know, the development, the housing development. I mean, he actually seen saw the young men come out of a different building, brandish a firearm, uh, intimidate and menace another group of individuals. And that's the, that same, those same individuals were able to walk across the street, past two buildings, chase my daughter and son into their building, and subsequently uh, kill my daughter as she was on the fourth floor of landing. So I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, how does this gang database, how does this surveillance, how does it stop crime? I mean, if it's not really stopping crime, why we're not uh, getting into human investments? Why we're not investing in these young people, um, striving to bring their greatness out uh, and striving to change their mindset? I think it's about changing the community norms, not about just uh, over-policing and suppressing a community. We have a phone call. Welcome to Max and Murphy. What's your question for our guests? Um, I would like to know what's the best way to resolve it then. If you keep on in the hands of people that are trying to protect you and are basically you know you're not understanding the whole picture you're just pointing more fingers okay okay so i guess the question is back to uh somewhere we were a few minutes ago which is what's the actual extent of the problem and how what's the best way to police it if not through these more sweeping tactics that you're you're pointing to problems with. So so this I mean this can merge the policing question and the investment question that you keep bringing up. What does it look like? What does the sort of picture of the better way look like? I think first of all we need transparency. We need to understand how did these young men or how these these individuals in general get on this list. Then we need to then we need to assess what's going on with these young individuals and provide their service needs. You know, I think I believe that you can change young people's mindsets and young people can be molded into being um, productive individuals into society. So I think we first have to understand how do you get on this database? We also have to understand what is it for? I think transparency is a big issue. And until we understand all those dynamics, I mean, it's going to be hard mm-hmm. to have a solution. So before we go to another call, transparency, investment in individuals. Josmar, do you want to add to, to that? In the beginning of the report, we note that in New York City, there was a vastly different gang uh, approach in the 1960s and 70s where they used social workers to do street outreach. And they had 
much better results. Research shows they have much better results than enforcement-heavy cities like in California, where they try to suppress their way to lowering gang, and they actually just inflame the gang issue. So if the if the goal is to lower violence and gang violence, which are not, which can you know, gangs don't necessarily equate to violence all the time, but when there is gang violence, uh, the research says that su- suppression tends to actually make problems worse. Is there any, before we go to the call, is there any role for the police in attacking the the gang and crew problem as it exists and the violence around it? I mean, uh, Taylon, you mentioned that police were surveilling the people who ended up killing your daughter. Um, was there something that they, that they should have done, that they could have done? I think intervention. Is, is a big part of this, and prevention. I think if they would have intervened when they actually seen or saw what was going on, uh, I think this would have been a different outcome. I mean, I think it seems like a lot of what we're talking about is what is the bar for police intervention. You see someone approaching people with a gun is a very different bar than someone who may have some association with someone you think is in a gang than being surveilled. Uh, let's go to our Let's go to our call here. Welcome to WBAI. You're on Max Murphy. What's your question? Um, I understand transparency is a priority, but you can't give away your means of attacking that violence. And I was wondering what they would like the police to do to combat this so nobody else doesn't get hurt. I think we've okay. yeah. touched on that to some to some degree, um, but I want to talk about the other part of this. We talked a little bit about the database and the problems that are that are there. Talk about the big gang sweeps. I know that your son got caught up in the the one in in Harlem. Uh, obviously, after that was the big Bronx one hundred and twenty raid. Talk about the issues that you see uh, in that approach to enforcement. What's what is problematic about those? big, big sweeps that we've heard about and that generate such headlines? Uh, I think one thing that's problematic is that it traumatizes a whole community and it traumatizes the generations after. Um, That approach is a smash and grab approach. Um, You you tend to have people that get caught in the mix that are not actually a part of of a gang or a crew. I know in the Bronx, the report with the Bronx 120, there were 60 individuals that weren't even gang members. So, I mean, I think that this whole tactic is just too broad. It's too broad of a tactic. Um, I think if we, we're talking about precision policing, we should do police work in, in real, real people's time. When you see something happening, as opposed to building a case, we need to stop it right when it's happening and nip it in the bud. Um, and like I said, the trauma that it puts on the community is just overwhelming. I mean, you have young people that, that still feel that to this day. Um, you have individuals that still are, are, are still um, going to PTSD about helicopters and people um, kicking down their doors and 400 police officers coming into a community to drag people out in the middle of the morning as opposed to, like I said, actually doing the police work in real time. Is, is there any support in the communities that have been targeted by those tactics for these tactics, you know, sometimes obviously people are, communities are not a monolith. There are a lot of different opinions. If you go into a housing a development uh, with a candidate and he sits down with um, older residents, they sometimes are very encouraging of more aggressive policing. They, I don't know if they want massive raids, but they certainly want a more aggressive posture. Where do you think that comes from? And do you think police have any justification in saying 
this is what some residents have asked for is for us to take control. Well, I'm going to go right back to the issue of social poverty. And I know that there are older elders. Our elders want to be safe. But when you're dealing with um, investing in social uh, initiatives, you have you have a chance to build a gap, meaning that you can put out initiatives that build a gap between the young and the old and actually have and actually um, infuse the old rules of taking care of your elders. The. NYPD, the city recently opened a community center in East New York. It's an NYPD-run community center. Joseph, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Is that uh, an appropriate you know, way for the NYPD to try to sort of ingratiate itself into community, to build community relationships, to try to you know, develop some of what the de Blasio administration has invested a lot in, this neighborhood uh, community policing approach? Um, or is that further sort of embedding police into communities where removing the police and providing more resources is really the better the better answer? Yeah, and I think one of the chief things that the Blasio administration has said over the last few years is one is we're in the era of precision policing, and the other is we're in the era of neighborhood policing. And when they say that, when, when you talk about a community center, I think they miss the fact um, that the people that they would seem like the ones that need to really uh, connect more with resources or the ones that really have the most antagonistic uh, relationship with the NYPD, they're not going to go to places where the NYPD are. They're not going to be drawn to an NYPD community center. The people who are more, you could say, at risk are not going to show up anywhere near something that has NYPD on it. So I think if I were to have a, you know, if I were to need a lung transplant, I wouldn't ask, how can my plumber help in this? Because he's not equipped to it. In my mind, police cannot do social work. The police themselves have said this. And I think that we have to, instead of trying to constantly merge community and policing together, you have to say, police's role is not appropriate. And these are social issues. Some, in some issues, these are generational poverty issues. These are behavioral issues. These are issues that New York City, again, had much more success with social workers. I know that doesn't sound as flashy as having like a militant-raised gang that you can say we got the bad guys, but it is that long-term work that actually fi- uh, fixes issues in the community from the from the ground up. And I think the police don't have a role in that. And so NYPD community centers, I think, in my mind, are a waste of effort because in Manhattanville, uh, one of the areas where they had the, the Harlem raid, that community center was closed for years, for years. And then they wonder why the kids are, are, are uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, running around and, and not behaving themselves because you've taken a resource out of the community and then you turn around and then the only thing that you have in response to them is 400 police officers. And, and just to add to Joe Small's point, and it's one thing that he said that was very important. These are teens. These are young people. I mean, young people's minds don't develop or they don't think like grown people do. You know, their minds don't develop until after in their mid-20s. I mean, these, again, I'm a transformative orchard mentor. I mean, I know that young people can be reached, they can be transformed, and they can be the greatest people that, that, that are out here in society doing great things. But you have to invest in them, and you have to invest in CBOs, community-based organizations that's out there and willing, on the ground, out there, grassroots, willing, boots on the ground, and willing to do the work. So we heard about We've heard a lot about the Bronx 120 raid, and we've mentioned today the Harlem raid that, that predated it. Uh, Josemar, what does this policing look like now? Are there um, other incidents where there are large numbers of arrests at once? Are people being hauled in 10 or 20 at a time? Is this about an arrest here or there? Or do these 
big are these big gang raids where they just sort of a one off or a two off and now it's subsided or is this basically a regular part of life for people no i think that I've, I've noticed that the NYPD has definitely not gone to the lengths of doing big 100-person-plus uh, operations as some questions have been raised. As some of these issues have finally been questioned by the media, I think the public relations side of doing a, a, a big raid is not positive anymore. It actually has, has risks for them. But in some of the smaller roundups or takedowns, there can be some of the same issues. So in, in the Bronx 120, you're just going to have more overcharging, more issues of people who are caught up unfairly. But in somewhat, in a case where you bring in 10 to 12 people, you'll st- you can still have people who are overcharged or completely uh, uh, being uh, you know railroaded. Uh, the question is, how many are we as a city willing to allow? How many wrongfully accused or overcharged people? Because in some cases, it's not people who are completely, you haven't done a, a thing in their lives, but it, there are gr- areas of gray. How many people are we willing to overcharge and or wrongfully convict uh, in order to feel safe? And I think the problem is that the history of the city says when it comes to black and Latino New Yorkers, uh, we're willing to tolerate a lot of injustice if it makes us feel safe. And that's not a choice I think that uh, myself or Taylon is, you know, wants to wants to have. Speak a little bit more um, about sort of your vision for the alternate way. You know, we've gotten at different pieces of it, including what you were saying about social workers. Um, in in your vision for a better setup, a better sort of social order of the role of police, um, the role of social services, talk a little bit more about what that looks like in in um, more of your ideal setup. What is what is the role of the police? Uh, how, you know, how does that look? Is it really just responding to violent incidents and? All of the, you know, all of the patrol and and such is done by social workers. You know, what does it? What does that look like? I mean, the one misconception about the database is that, as some of the callers have said, it's it's a crime fighting tool. So, gang policing in and of itself is not necessarily a crime fighting tool. It's a it's a tool to enhance and expand um, consequences. So, the police. Are not like without in a world without the database, the police would not be, you know, banned from like charging someone if they saw a crime committed. So, in the issue of what can police do, it's very little that police can do for some deep-seated issues. Obviously, if 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 a person is is killed or something horrific happens, the community is going to want that person held accountable, and the police may have a role to play in that. But when it comes to a lot of these large-scale conspiracy takedowns, uh, you're not dealing with cases where people have actually pulled the trigger or committed the crime, you're just implicating them kind of like what was done with the mafia as this vast criminal enterprise. So the the very mindset of police when, when the gang label comes up is you're treating them like John Gotti and the Gambino crime family, which is a completely uh, inappropriate way of dealing with young, often young people who, who need direction and who need services. It's actually the most, I would say, the most backwards way of dealing with these issues. So I just don't believe the police have a role to play. But again, if the police have evidence, if someone has committed a criminal crime, nothing, if, you know, if all of the demands of the campaign that we rolled out last week were fulfilled, police would still be able to hold people accountable. The problem is how, how much are they abusing that power and how many uh, people are they roping in that uh, are being traumatized in the, in, the, in the meantime? 
Taylan, I was reading today accounts of the sentencing of your son. And of course, your daughter died in violence. Your son was charged and convicted of what could have been seen as retaliatory violence. And I know that on the day that he was sentenced, one of your concerns you expressed to people from the neighborhood who gathered into the press was that the that cycle of violence would continue. What's happened since then? Has there been a continuance of sort of tit-for-tat violence, or has that subsided? And if so, how? What has happened in your neighborhood since these very painful incidents involving your daughter and your and your son? Well, first, <clears throat> the first point I want to make is that my son's trial had no physical evidence, had had, had no DNA evidence. Um, it was just basically based on uh, Facebook posts. It was just based on word of mouth. Um, and the sentence was very excessive for, for that type 50, of 50 years. Was yeah, the for that type of evidence. The second thing I want to say is that, uh, yes, of course, um, things have subsided in the community. I mean, when you take 103 individuals out of a community, I mean, that's not just uh, taking away 15 people or 20 people. That's taking away a whole generation. So, yes, they, they subsided, but then they spiked. As, as they took away, uh, a, a, they took away a layer, and then a la- another layer just uh, grew up or, or took their place. So, I believe again, and I'm just wholeheartedly on. We have to figure out uh, the link between social services as well as public safety. Uh, like I said, um, Joe Smart said, I, I th- don't think the police are needed in social services. However, they are. I mean, they do uh, do a service when people are doing crime. We're not going to be able to touch everybody. We're not going to be able to reach everybody. But at least let us reach some of the young individuals that want to be reached. And so you get at it, and this I think will probably be our final uh, question. Hopefully each of you um, you know, can weigh in. You, you, the, the city has invested more in community-based organizations like the Violent Interrupters uh, and some of the work that certainly that you're talking about. Can you you know, just sort of give a final thought about what that work looks like and how it and how it goes. And if there's if the investment has been what you'd like it to be or I mean, it sounds like you've already said that you think it should be much greater. But can you talk a little bit about what that work looks like uh, specifically? Um, to be honest with you, I, I, I just want to say this. If, if we're able to invest in four, three, four county jails. Right, we should be able to invest in 24-hour crisis management uh, centers, uh, stop one-stop shop, stop and shop to deal with different situations that uh, the community goes through, and have them services or have them surgeons that's in that building for 24 hours dealing with all different type of issues and all to, all different type of social issues, housing issues, and things of that nature. So I I believe that's that's one thing that we should invest mm-hmm. in. And I should say that a couple of weeks ago at a city council hearing, these same credible messengers were there, and all of them were saying this is a drop in the bucket. The $36 million so dollars that the city's investment is literally just keeping them on a shoestring budget. So the city, yes, has invested in them, but hasn't invested in them in a meaningful way to say, hey, this is really going to expand and really change our conversation about how we can stop crime. Um, and all of them were saying, basically, we need more resources, and the question is, will the city con- uh, you know, 
put some of the same resources into these uh, community-based solutions as they will to, you know, like uh, another police uh, training center or, or another batch of uh, police officers. And history tells us, unfortunately, that they won't. Right. There's, for a point of reference, the NYPD's budget is $5.6 billion. So there is a substantial amount invested in the current approach to uh, to enforcement. Well, Josemar Trujillo and Taylor Murphy Sr., thank you so much for joining us and talking us through this uh, very important issue. Thank you. Thanks thank you both. Thank, thank you both.